Welcome back to Comics Overtime, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me this week, as always, my good buddy Dan. Dan, how's it going? No, really well. It's been a fun week. Enjoyed uh, getting a chance to talk a little bit of Ragnarok with you last week. And so, so much fun. We're going to do it again because yes. we talked about the, the Ragnarok comics from the early 2000s last week. And now this week we're going to check out the 2017 third Thor movie from the MCU called, aptly enough, Thor Ragnarok. Yes, it, it's going to be... Fun looking at the differences and similarities between the two, and and I think uh, I've got some thoughts on this film. This was th this film has evolved in my thought process over the course of the day after watching it early this morning. So, but it, before we jump into that, let's talk a little comic book news. And there was an interesting story uh, this week, thanks to James Gunn. Wonder Woman comic rockets to number one on Amazon after James Gunn's endorsement. So there was a DC book that uh, James Gunn, the new head of DCEU, uh, promoted on, on Twitter, uh, praising Wonder Woman Historia, a DC's three-issue black label book, which has now been collected into a single volume. And in the span of one day after that, Gunn's tweet helped Historia skyrocket to the best-selling DC book on Amazon. Gunn himself responding to the boost in sales, telling fans that I'm excited for all of you to check it out. And Dan has copies of these. All right. Uh, I'm disappointed here. I think I, I plugged this, you know, probably six months ago here on the podcast and why wasn't it as Amazon number one then? I, I don't understand. <laughs> might have a little more reach than you. Sorry that's to say, Dad. Unfortunate. Yeah, that's fantastic comic book. Probably one of the best, one of the most impressive looking comic books, just lushly beautiful that I've seen in years. The story is tremendous. You, you could not pick a better thing to convince people to go out and read to enjoy comic books. So, yeah, Wonder Woman Historia, written by Kelly Sue DeConnick, with art by Phil Jimenez, Nicola Scott, and Jean Ha. So yep, this, each this... of them did one issue. Okay, there we go. And I, those covers looked very impressive that you were showing off there. Yeah, the originals were actually in an oversized edition. So they're actually under the DC Black Label um, kind of imprint. And so they were relatively reasonably priced. They were like eight bucks for these oversized, probably like hundred page or whatever books. Um, actually a, a good deal and just spectacular, spectacular books. So if you can find them in the originals at a comic store, certainly recommend that. Otherwise I'm sure there's probably collected editions either out or coming out. New on Marvel Unlimited this week. We don't have any number ones that are going becoming available this week, but Guardians of the Galaxy, Spider-Man 2099, Red Goblin, Miles Morales, 
Fantastic Four, Captain America, She-Hulk, and Venom are among those getting a new title released this week on Marvel Unlimited. So if any of those strike your fancy, go go to Marvel Unlimited and check those out. Dan, do you have a recommendation this week? Sure. So actually, one of the stories that I had pre-ordered is something called The Cull by Kelly Thompson. Um, Mattia did, I think, the Julius or the Julius and Hassan Otsame Alahu. I've never been good at pronouncing his name, but tremendous creators, really a cool book. It immediately sold out and has gone in for a second printing. Um, this is a title that the art's beautiful. It's sort of photorealistic and really lush. Uh, the story looks to be kind of a horror slash psychological thriller that there's a lost kid, so there's a bit of a mystery. There's giant monsters coming ashore and eating everybody on the beach. There's a bit of a, you know, a super super kaiju kind of element to it. It's going to be wild and very different from the sound of it. So if you're looking for something interesting and new, I would check out The Cull. We will have a link to that in the show notes. And with that, we're going to get to talk about thor ragnarok this is your spoiler warning for a film from 2017 seems a little ridiculous but that that is the case we are going to be talking about specifics about the actors and actresses the plots all that sort of thing as well as the discussion about what this might mean for the mcu going forward from this film so if you have not seen the movie recently and don't want anything spoiled before listening to our discussion Please stop the recording now and then join us when you're done and we will talk about Thor Ragnarok. All right, your film facts for Thor Ragnarok. The tagline of the film, no hammer, no problem. Obviously a very, very big spoiler if you saw that before seeing the film. The movie was released November 3rd, 2017. It has a runtime of 130 minutes. Box office worldwide, 853, almost $854 million. All that on a budget of $180 million. It currently has an IMDb rating of 7.9 out of 10. The movie stars Chris Hemsworth, Tom Hiddleston, Kate Blanchett, Mark Ruffalo, Jeff Goldblum, Tess Thompson, Indris Alba, Carl Urban, and Sir Anthony Hopkins. It is directed by Taika Waititi, and screenplay credits go to Eric Pearson, Craig Kyle, and Christopher Yost. Those are your film facts for Thor Ragnarok. Dan, a recap for this film. There is is a lot going on in this film. I uh, do not not know how we're going to do a short recap for this. Well, and also keep in mind that there's really... So much going on that is more about tone and about humor and things like that in this, that the plot is really in some ways secondary. Yes. Um, A lot happens, but there's also a lot that's not included in here that's just sort of goofy, sort of off-the-wall type of of things that you're definitely going to want to watch the movie, not listen to the recap as far as Ragnarok. That said, I'm going to give it a go. So, you ready for this? Yes, let's do this. 
Thor Ragnarok begins with a hero trapped in a deep cave with Surtur, the fire giant. He banters with the giant and then fights him and his army, eventually beheading his enemy and returning to Asgard. Thor then finds that Loki has replaced Odin. Odin himself is missing, and the brothers return to Earth, where they look to find their father. They end up tracking him down in the Norwegian fjords with the help of Doctor Strange. But Odin then disappears, sort of off into the cosmos, saying he's off to find his wife. Hela arrives, directly as he leaves, gets in a fight with the brothers, and Mjolnir is actually destroyed by her when she grabs it as it's coming toward her and just sort of crushes her, or crushes it. Hela then heads off to Asgard, summarily kills two of the warriors three as she steps out of the portal from the Rainbow Bridge. And then turns to Scourge and basically says, do you want to be my lackey or do you want to die? And he's like, I'll take lackey. And then she's got someone to talk to. Loki and Thor were actually kicked out of the Rainbow Bridge transport tube by Hello, while all three of them were being dragged back. And Thor ends up in a big alien garbage dump when he lands off the bridge. He ends up being saved by a drunk, crazy woman with exceptional fighting skills and toys who then immediately retraps him and hands him off to the big bad of the planet, someone named the Grandmaster. Hela, meanwhile, is causing significant havoc in Asgard, where she murders an entire army and then declares herself queen of the plane. Back with Thor, we find out that the planet he's on is called Sakaar, and it's ruled by this fellow, the Grandmaster, who he's been sold to. Grandmaster intends to use him as a contender in his contest of champions, and he ends up being imprisoned with a rock being called Korg while awaiting for his chance to defeat the champion and earn his freedom. This is the MacGuffin, is that the only way off that planet is to defeat the champion, and then you can do whatever you want. When the battle comes, ends up being Thor versus the Hulk, who somehow got there long ago after he escaped at the end of one of the previous movies, the two of them pummel each other pretty thoroughly before the Grandmaster actually cheats to knock out Thor and protect his champion's record. Back in Asgard, Hela makes Scourge her executioner and takes an undead army off on a war against the realms, only to find out the Bifrost sword is missing, so she can't actually get her army off sort of the, uh, the, the big island, and she's stuck wandering around running to try and find it. Heimdall and other anti-Hela's guardians are hiding this. This oh, ah. Heimdall and other anti-Hela's guardians are actually hiding the sword and taking refuge outside the city. Thor eventually breaks out of his prison on Sakar. The Hulk wrecks the Quinjet that he's trying to escape in before turning back into Bruce Banner, and the two of them then make their escape from Sakar with the help of Loki and the Scrapper. We now find out now find out is actually an Asgardian herself, one of the Valkyrie, and in fact the last of the Valkyrie. In the process of all of this, Loki tries to betray Thor once again, and after an extended chase, our heroes well, and after an extended chase, our heroes use the Grandmaster's own ship to return to Asgard through a space-time portal in the sky called the Devil's Anus. They return just as Hela is making her assault on Heimdall's shelter, and Thor confronts Hela at the palace as Heimdall tries to get his guardian refugees to the Bifrost. They're there, they're there met by Fenris the Wolf and the undead army of Hela, where a big fight commences 
and continues in both locations, with Valkyrie and the Hulk joining in. The battle goes badly, though, until Loki and Korg show up with a ship to take the refugees away. Odin appears to Thor at the moment where Hela seems to have defeated him, and says Thor is strong enough to win. He doesn't need his hammer. He needs to save the people of Asgard, not the place Asgard. And then he sends Loki to put the head of Surtur into the Eternal Flame, which we'd found out way back in the first scene of the movie, was the thing that would eventually bring Surtur back and bring about Ragnarok. This does, in fact, result in Surtur popping back up into his 500-foot form. His mountain form. He yeah. brings, Yes, he brings about the end of Asgard by basically using his big sword and just taking out everything. And in the process, he takes away Hela's power because she draws from Asgard itself. Thor and his friends, with all of the remaining Asgardians, then fly away in the spaceship as Hela and Surtur fight, leading to the complete destruction of Asgard, which eventually blows up as the movie ends. Now, everything seems fine. They saved everybody, yay. But then we do get the mid-credits scene, which undercuts this a bit as we see Thanos' ship looming in front of the refugees' path, which was ominous at the time, but in retrospect is really depressing. Yeah. Now that we know exactly what that means. And then the the very last thing that you see after the credits is Thor will return in no. Avengers Affinity War. So definitely uh yep. definitely means a lot to to setting up setting up that film. That is correct. All right, let's let's jump in and talk about this. And we we've talked a lot about Hemsworth and Hiddleston in these Thor movies. They've done, they seem to be, I think, the linchpin as far as as far as the films. And once again, these two do a fantastic job in in this film. And, and actually. I want to commend Tom Hiddleston because I think he really shined in this film. Like, really fantastic job. He is walking this tightrope with this character between being kind of the devious, mischievous brother to Thor and trying to do the right thing sometimes. And, and you don't really know from minute to minute where he where his allegiances actually lie and 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 i think it makes him a very complex character the humor that he uses throughout all this is very subtle and 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 actually i think is some of the best humor in this film uh as far as far as that goes mm -hmm. what what did you think of tom edelston's performance in this film no he's spectacular i also will think or, or will say that i think that the way Watiti sort of sets this movie up, it is perfect for Loki because Loki is yes. a character that thrives within this sort of of narrative, right? Yeah. So, yes, his his humor works better, but I think that's also because just naturally a character that basically just is constantly looking at the whole world as though it's a joke is going to really just fit in in this world where everything is is sort of over the top goofy so right there was some interesting quotes about that that tom hiddleston had about this movie he was talking about what loki's been up to since thor Dar the dark world he said loki has devoted most of his efforts to narcissistic 
self-glorification, not so much on good governance, because he's actually pretending mm-hmm. to be Odin at the beginning of the film. He's got this play where he's completely embellished what it is he did in order to help kind of save Asgard uh, in the in the first in the first two films. And, uh, yep. you know, it, it takes Thor to actually see through him and get him to uh, reveal himself as actually being Odin. Um, so that so he's the one that's been governing all this time. So he says Loki has always tested the limits of his power and the boundaries placed upon him. He doesn't just stick to his finger in a an electrical plug socket. He burns the house down and now he has to deal with the consequences. I, lo- I loved that comment. And then he's, he was talking about, um, he said, it's in Loki's nation, nature to change. He's a mercurial spirit. And the minute you try to find him, he changes shape. But events in Ragnarok try and inspire him to change forever. The goddess of death shows up and the stakes are high for everyone. So Loki, perhaps more than ever, is challenged to define himself in the face of that threat. He and Thor are in such an extraordinary situation where everything is so unfamiliar that their familiarity as family members becomes important. Just just reading those and thinking about how he portrayed the character in this movie, it's just he gets the character that he's playing. And it and it and it just it, it works on so many levels. So Keep in mind, though, that even as late as the start of the third act, he's trying to betray his brother back to the Grandmaster and get right. the reward. I mean, that's right up to them, like, leaving in the ship. So if, you know, if Thor had trusted him a little bit more, Hela would have taken over and everything would have been terrible and he'd have completely pooched it and his nature would have... Uh... So I do think that, you know... The, the number of points awarded to Loki in this should be kept to a minimum because he was still <laughs> sure. he was still pretty awful. He just well, I mean, wasn't I, as awful as he could have been. Yeah. I mean I mean I love that that story where Thor talks about him turning turning into a, a snake when yep. they were kids and all this it's just it's in his nature, no matter how like much he might, you know have this good relationship with Thor that he, he he still is kind of even testing that boundaries constantly. And as you said, he, he was about ready to, 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 to uh, turn on, on Thor as they were trying to escape. But in the end, I mean, he, he jumps into the, into the refugee ship uh, when Korg invites him, he says, boy, you all look like you're in need of leadership. <laughs> and Korg says, thank you. And then they show up on Asgard and, and they're, yeah. you know, jumping away. And he's actually the one that goes and 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 does the the thing and lets Surtur loose and, and causes that that whole big final fi- final moments of Asgard, I guess. As far as as far as Chris Hemsworth, he he to me still looks and feels like every bit the part of the Thor character. It, it was interesting that you know we had short-haired Thor in this one. In fact, Stan Lee, his cameo was he's the guy that actually cut cut Thor's mm-hmm. hair before he 
he went into the arena for the uh for the the champions battle uh i feel like that kind of hero's journey that he had to get the odin power in the thor ragnarok comics i feel like he had that kind of evolution in this in this film mm-hmm. uh, a little bit differently obviously than the than the version that we saw in the comics but he still kind of realized what it meant to lead and that you know asgard is the people it's not the place that you know you, the power that you had wasn't in the hammer it was in the inside of you all along and so he has he has those things and and I liked that about the Thor about Thor in this but I'm going to tell you that Hemsworth in this film I did not like as much as I liked him as Thor in the first two films and I and the reason for that is specifically at Taika Waititi because he said he wanted to showcase Chris Hemsworth comedic talent in this film he said he's so good and underutilized in that department, he's legitimately one of one of the funniest things in this film. And there are definitely moments in this film that I thought he was exceptionally funny, but there was also a lot of times where it was ridiculous and and not funny, and it was just like it was. There was a lot of going for the joke instead of keeping the plot moving. And I think you actually said that before we jumped in and talked about the recap. Yeah, and and I will note one thing. I loved this movie when it came out. Yeah. I, I loved everything about this movie when it came out. I loved the Grandmaster and his ridiculous over-the-top scene stealing scenery chewing ways. And I <laughs> yes, loved yes. The fact that this was a Thor movie that took chances graphically and it took chances with the characters and it did crazy things. There were parts of it that bothered me. Like, I'm a big Warriors 3 fan. The fact that two of them got basically killed with five seconds of of time on screen, that hurts my soul a little bit. It did at the time. It still does now. I I don't know if I've ever actually really forgiven Tycho for that. But... When it came in as a one-off, where we're going to do this crazy Contest of Champions type thing, and Contest of Champions was a miniseries, a three-issue miniseries back in the 80s that was basically like all the Marvel heroes going and facing off against each other in this big competition. So they kind of name-dropped some things from the comic and everything. I loved the fight with the Hulk, and it was just a, a truly zany movie doing some things that would have otherwise been really depressing, like watching Asgard just get destroyed. Right. Could have been, this could have been a real downer of a movie. And instead it was, it was a fun movie. I loved the call outs. Like a lot of the very bright colors, the blues, the yellows, the reds were specifically kind of a call out to Jack Kirby and his style of, of artwork and the way Marvel comics were colored back then. So a lot of the, the vehicles had these weird, strange boxinesses with the the crazy lines on the side. They looked like they were directly out of Kirby. So there were a lot of things about this that as a one-off, they're just doing something crazy, I think could have been very, very good for the Marvel Universe. Yeah. The problem I have 
is that when they brought Thor back after everything that happens to him and all, all of the terrible things of the snap and the, you know, the destruction and trying to set up this new, and then you've got Gore the God Butcher as your villain and everything. And they decided, let's stick with the funny shtick. Yeah. I think that's where, that's that's now coloring my viewing of this film. Yeah. Because um, I enjoyed Thor 4, but I think that I would have enjoyed it more probably if it was more like Thor 1 and 2 than yeah. being the way, like 3. In and of itself, 3 is a funny movie. I think Hemsworth is a funny guy. He did a great job, and it was entertaining. It should have been a one-off for the character, though, of this is just sort of Thor on a weird day rather than this is the new normal. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. We looked at the we looked at some of the Thor comics last week, and and I loved some of the J. Michael Straczynski books because there was a lot of funny elements in there and it wasn't Thor that was being funny. It was kind of no the situation and the things around him and things like that. And the first two movies felt to me a lot like that, right? They were based on earth. There was a lot of like, Oh, there's this weird guy who thinks he's a God who's just showing up and doing these really crazy things. Doesn't understand the world we live in. And so that ends up being funny, just kind of as a result of things. And and now it's like everything Hemsworth is is being asked to do in in these films is is for the joke first. And and it, I didn't, it it didn't play as it it played really well the first time I saw this film. It did not play as well this time when I rewatched it. And I would even say. I watched this film multiple times when it came out in 2017. And I think it was a you know, breath of fresh air then. It was an absolutely brilliant sort of divergence from what we'd been seeing in the MCU and the like. And I loved it then. So I was a little surprised yeah. this time that yeah, some of the stuff same. fell kind of flat with me. Yeah. So, but such is the way. Um, yeah, I, I still think... Hemsworth is a great Thor, but it is, it is interesting how, you know, kind of like we talked last week, we don't see Thor smile a lot in the comics necessarily, like in, in, you know, 12 issues or whatever. I don't know. He cracked a joke at any point. Maybe, you know, maybe while he was in human form, but I don't think even then, uh, he's, he's just a guy who is always the straight man. You know, yeah. Loki's the one throwing the pies, and then Thor is getting hit by the pie. And you've got Volstag, and you've got all these other characters that sort of provide the comic relief. And Thor is just this guy who's oblivious to everything except whatever it is he at this point has his mind set on doing. And so, yeah, it's it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit interesting. So. We're going to talk, I think, more about this in just a minute. But I, I did want to point out, we finally had a female villain or an adversary for a main character in an MCU film. Kate Blanchett was, I don't know, the best way I can put it is evil incarnate. She did a fantastic, fantastic job just being 
a commanding presence from the moment she comes on the screen that very first time when they're in Norway and Odin has just kind of faded off and suddenly this dark cloud appears and she shows up and says hey boys <laughs> I'm here uh you know I'm your I'm your your older sister you didn't know about and I'm gonna take over Asgard and things are going to be a little bit different than the way you you've been dealing with this. Uh, you know, you talked about destroying Mjolnir right then very early on in this film, the very first meeting, because Thor doesn't realize just how powerful uh, she is. And specifically the, when she gets to Asgard, the fight scene with Hogan and the entire Asgard army that kind of, confronts her they're like they don't know who she is because she's been completely kind of whitewashed from from the uh history of asgard and uh nobody really knows how how powerful she is she she went in and just basically destroyed everyone there's some actually some rather graphic sort of violence in there she's throwing knives and swords and people are being impaled and and heads are getting cut off and it's just from the word go i think they they had the right actress for this role and she did a fantastic job oh yeah and i mean that's not surprising particularly because yes she's how many she's things how many things has she been bad in like <laughs> right somewhere near right. zero probably yes but yeah she she looked terrifying and fantastic and all that all at the same time it was really a really a cool performance and again it was an over-the-top movie her character was more over the top than almost anybody else in just the you know every time she wants to do something bad takes her hands and like puts them back over her head and reestablishes her little horn armor or whatever and everything yeah it's all very theatrical but really really effective in being somebody who just kind of oozes that that i'm going to do terrible things and enjoy it sort of vibe so i i think that you know good villain is always important that is one thing that's weird about this is she's not in the movie all that much because the other villain kind of is the Grandmaster. Yes. And he's less imposing and impressive <laughs> in some ways. You could, you could say that. I I mean, he Jeff Goldblum, I, I think, played the Grandmaster quite quite well for i think where he was trying to go with the character and where the movie was trying to go with the character uh but yes completely different style uh than than, than hello was in the in this one jeff goldblum's always awesome and so that was it was fun seeing him and and he kind of you know following in sort of the vein of the collector some yes. of those elder gods of the Marvel Universe are evidently some very odd dudes. Living for a million years very. does does something to a person, evidently. So, in any case, I, I do think it was more interesting when they were fighting Hela. Because she was a character with more backstory, kind of some more depth, and obviously a lot, a lot more uh, sort of danger involved when she's there. 
was doing I, when I was looking into this. So she's Hella in the comics and in kind of, and I think also in, in Norse mythology is Loki's daughter and not at Odin's daughter or Thor and Loki's sister as it's portrayed in this film. Yeah, Hela, they, they've mixed up a lot of things in the Marvel Universe. In any case, she's got a complicated parentage. It changes. It's definitely different than in the actual myths, but that's pretty normal. They, they change things around quite a bit. And she looks very similar to her costume in the comics, though. And of all yeah. the characters in the Marvel Universe that you'd think probably, they would have really just sort of not even tried to duplicate the... The weird sort of like right, you know, moose, moose antler thing. kind of yeah. uh, of helmet that Hella has. Yeah. They did a great job with it, and Kate Blanchett can evidently pull off anything and make it look menacing, and so it worked. So I was kind of surprised that the costume was as comic accurate as it was. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about Taika Waititi because. He has had a very strong influence on Thor, obviously being the director in this film and then was brought back uh, for Thor Love and Thunder in 2022, as well as the MCU. And and what's interesting is so in the first two Thor films, we had two different directors directing those films. We had Kenneth Branagh doing the original Thor film from 2011. We had Alan Taylor directing the Thor The Dark World in 2013. And and it's interesting because, like, it's obvious he wanted to go in a different direction with this because it, it's very much different than, I think, what we saw in the first two films for Thor. And he he apparently, in some of kind of the, the, the discussions that he had with Marvel going into this is he said he very much thought that Thor needed an overhaul. He said he needed to be the kind of fun hero that we wanted to follow on a journey. And you can't do that when your hero is super earnest and serious, which is a choice. I would say, um, I, I don't know if I necessarily, agree with that i think that we've we've had other kind of heroes that are earnest and serious and that we've still enjoyed going on journeys with them but um you know that was that was the direction he goes he, he talked about he described the film as a 1970s 1980s science fiction fantasy the most out there of all the marvel movies he cited Big Trouble in Little China as a major, major influence for the movie. He said it's a fun adventure film that has big stakes, but also has breakneck speed and that you are on a crazy, it takes you on a crazy adventure. I mean, I think he did that. It's just whether or not that was the direction that we should have gone. And, it, and, it, and you know, Obviously, at the time, it feels like it worked because there was a lot of really, really good reviews for this film. Obviously, it's got a really good IMDb rating even still. Um, just as a for instance, one of the one of the comments I was uh, read, uh, exciting, fun and above 
exciting, funny, and above all fun, Thor Ragnarok is a colorful cosmic adventure that sets a new standard for the its franchise and for the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So a lot of people really this movie really resonated with a lot of people, not just like at the box office, but critically it, it resonated with a lot of people. And what that what that means is we we start to see some of these same things again. Yeah, and I mean, really, you know, when you look at the last, the movies coming out before that, you'd had, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which was a little lighter. You'd had Ant-Man, which was a little lighter. So Marvel had started moving a little in that direction. But it was still more, you know, outside the Thomas the Train moments in, in Ant-Man and stuff, it was not as much like gag humor, you know, like actual ha-ha funny. It was more... Uh, make you make you chuckle a little bit before the next action scene type of of funny so i think leading up to it this really was a good choice and then you know coming after it we go directly from that to black panther and then infinity war and so they were heading into a very dark period in the mcu so this was kind of a just a calm before the storm so I can see why they decided to do it. They also had to have known what they were getting because Taika Waititi has never made a non-Taika Waititi movie, right? Yes, yes. <clears throat> There's, you can't blame him and go, oh man, he tricked Marvel into letting him make this crazy movie. If they didn't know this is what they were getting, then that's on them, right? Because everything he's done turns into Taika Waititi does the Holocaust. Taika Waititi does pirates. Taika Waititi does vampires. They all look exactly the same. They're all just, you know, they've got some heartfelt moments and they've got a good story, but there is a, an element of just sort of anarchy and weirdness about all of them that is just his way of making movies, you know? So... I, I think that it did work at the time. And that's why I'm surprised, frankly, that on the rewatch, I don't remember many movies changing as much in my estimation as this one did. This one felt long to me today, like when yeah. I was watching it. It it, like, it did a little bit, probably like 15 or 20 minutes, a little bit too long. And, and it's been a while since I watched a movie where I felt like that. I must like this. This this seems to be going on and on and on. But it's it's interesting. They also like they brought him in and like you as you said the this movie is setting up the Avengers: Infinity War that that's going to come out in in less than a year, I think, or about a year after this film. They. They looked at it as an, or he looked at it as an opportunity to completely kind of reinvent the franchise. I mean, you had Thor: The Dark World that really did not go over very well at the box office. A lot of people have really, really talked about their their dislike for that film. Though, though, strangely enough, that film has kind of gotten the inverse in, in a lot of people's minds. Uh, 
since 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 it came out as well where you know a lot of people didn't like it initially and and it has grown on them over over time as well he's yep really has. he said a lot of what we're doing in this film in a way dismantling and destroying the old idea and rebuilding it in a new way that's fresh everyone's got a slightly new take on their characters so in that way it feels like thor from 2011 and I had even read something about the fact that Hemsworth himself was actually kind of a little bored of the character and really wanted yep. to do something different with the character because he had been Thor in like four or five movies to the to this point, you know, two Thor movies and two Avengers films uh, that that he was in. And so I, I, I get from like his standpoint too that this this could be appealing and you have somebody that 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 that's come in he he's known for for kind of zany and comedy and things yep. like that and he's like you're funny let's bring that into the film and and i think for, from what i'm seeing it does sort of seem like everybody sort of enjoyed themselves with with making this film it, it's interesting they there was apparently a lot of improvisational work that happened during this film. Taika Waititi actually said in an MTV news interview that, that he said, I would say we improvised probably 80% of this film or ad libbed and threw in stuff. So there is a lot of chaos going on, not just in the script, but just out of the script and just what's going on in the in, in their heads in the moment and, and some of that stuff got in into the film yes i wonder how kate blanchett felt about that actually because she does not <laughs> it doesn't seem like the kind of actress that would be it's kind of like uh, who was it on iron man that was not in oh. with all of the improvising jeff bridges i don't think jeff, jeff bridges, bridges. He was like, you know, this is like doing some sort of student film or something like that. Right. And it's just not not what he was used to at that point. It sounds yeah. like this may have been a similar experience. Well, there was a there was a, a a quote I read from the cinematographer of this film, and she was like, "It was so weird. I had no idea what was going on. I didn't realize where we were at. You know, I'm here." at the behest of the director to try and capture, you know, his vision and what he's trying to do and, and, you know, do it in a really technically sound way. And, and it, and it sounds like that was just kind of off the rails sort mm -hmm. of thing, trying, trying to capture, capture this film uh, when you've got, you know, all this improvisational going on, all this kind of crazy zany stuff going on. And then you have all the CGI on top of all of it, uh, you know, yep. between Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk, you've got Kate Blanchett and all her like headdress and all that, that helmet and, and all that you've got Asgard itself is, is pretty much entirely, uh, you know, CG as well. So it sounds like it was a really, really difficult sort of job to kind of pull that onto uh, uh, yep. onto film. Yeah, that that makes sense. I and again, I know that I still I'm I'm glad they did this. 
I think that it came out as a film that was what it needed to be at the time. And really, that's all you can ask of a movie, is that it it kind of catches catches what you want when you're going to the theater when it comes out. And I really don't think it's its fault. It's not this movie's right. fault. It might be the same problem that all superheroes movies are having right now, is that the movies after them have weighted them down and made them seem less fun in retrospect because there's just been a change to the way cult, the, the culture is is responding to them. But I really I really thought this one was very interesting and, and was I, I did laugh a lot and had a great time when I saw it before. This time I'm like, oh seen some of this before. Right. I don't know. It's weird. So so the question I have for you is did Marvel take the right lessons from this film? And and the the, the thing that I when I was watching this film, I like was looking at this and I was like I can see where they've now reused some of these same ideas and thoughts and tropes and jokes and things like that in mm-hmm. the Marvel movies since this film, right? You have Thor himself trying to be funny rather than just being funny without trying, you know, slapstick humor, relying on the same joke over and over. I got really sick of the Thor getting electrocuted joke. That, that that just kept being the reoccurring joke that kept happening over and over and over again. And then, and then Loki gets it. And then it's just like, it's like, okay, that's, yeah, that's fantastic. We, you know, obviously very VFX heavy. We've been going this way. We've been getting further and further away from, from practical uh, filmmaking and getting more into that, into that CGI filmmaking. You have, cameos we had matt damon sam neill in that in that in that stupid loki play at the beginning you know you have these really eccentric characters uh you know jeff goldblum is there is is the kind of the original but like we and i mean even Mm -hmm. felicio del toro i guess may have been the original as the collector but uh you know think of bill murray's character in the latest Ant-Man film. And it reminds me a lot of, of the Grandmaster. And, and it's just like, they're kind of reusing some of these same things. I, it's like, I was reading this, this article about the Barbie movie and how popular the Barbie movie right now is. And they're like, what are the lessons that are going to get learned from the Barbie movie that, that, that they can make. And, and, resoundingly it seems like the the idea that they're taking away from it is we need to make more movies about toys and not that you know we're talking about you know empowering women and 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 some of the like male dominated spaces and and that they shouldn't be and and all that important messaging that Greta Gerwin was trying to put into this film and and it's like no we need to make more toy movies that that's the thing that we learned from this and it's like you had all these things that worked really well kind of in a lightning in the bottle sort of scenario with this film and it was great and i think they can use a little bit of that going forward but it feels like they're keep reusing so much of these same formula and this these same things over and over again and it might be that that we're just getting sick of now uh, it's been the way it's been forever. You know, back in the day when 
Unforgiven came out and suddenly everything was a Western for a few years until now they basically killed Westerns for 20 years by overdoing them when, when it was a thing. It just seems to be the way Hollywood has always done things is that they just chase after whatever was popular before. The weird thing is comic books have lasted longer than most of them last. Yeah. Having now almost a 15-year dominance at the at the box office, the way that the that particular genre has is unusual. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, Barbie 2, Barbie 3, everything like that is going to obviously be what Hollywood's going to want. You pump it out, you do sequels, you, know, you have Bratz the movie or whatever, and, and any other sort of thing you can do. The real lesson that always needs to be taken is make something fresh and new that interests people and speaks to what they're thinking about now, and you're going to be successful. Right. And that's the one lesson that Hollywood never seems to take. <laughs> they never seem to take that. Yeah, no. is, is look for what people are wanting to see now, not what they wanted to see three years ago. And right. There you go. Anyway. All right, let's start out with the tidbits. Principal photography began July 4th, 2016 on this film. So about a year and about three months before it would end up getting released under the working title creature report. Uh, it was, it started filming in village roadshow studio in Oxenford, gold coast, Queensland, Australia. So that's, that's where they started. All right. The most well-known tidbit about this film has to be the friends from work comment or line from the, from the Coliseum when Thor is getting ready to fight the Incredible Hulk. Uh, this was suggested to him by a Make-A-Wish kid who was on the set, visiting the set that day. So that was that was talking about improvisational. They had they had a kid on the set that improvised probably one of the funniest lines of this film. It is actually pretty crazy. I did not I did not know that. Or at least I did not remember that. So you've at least you've at least enlightened me as to a tidbit, whether whether everyone else already knows it or not. So, well played. That, that that that's the one thing I always remember about this. It's it's crazy. So that's the cool. the song heard in the trailer and Thor's first and last battle is Led Zeppelin's "Immigrant" song. It was specifically chosen because it has lyrics that mention the Norse mythology and it and it's also interesting because led zeppelin doesn't actually license out their mu music for movies very frequently so it's always kind of interesting and, and a real treat when you hear their music in something a lot of cameron crowe movies have it but this is one of the few movies where cameron crowe wasn't involved where where led zeppelin a led zeppelin song was used in a movie uh, Valkyrie's flashback when Loki touches her forehead and we see a flashback to, to the, the Valkyries taking on, uh, Hela the first time, uh, used a 900 frame per second, high speed rate and a special 360 degree lighting rig with 200 strobe lights to make the scene look as disorienting as possible. And, uh, Mission accomplished. It it looked really cool, though. 
it was very dark and there was a lot of flashing going on as Hela's throwing all these knives and blades and swords at at the Valkyries as they as they rush in on flying horses to to attack her. So at least some of that was practical was actually so filmed. Some some of that was actually practical and and they used this special lighting rig in order to get some of that visual look to that scene. Huh. Very cool. Uh, this movie was released in 2017 along with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and Spider-Man Homecoming. This was the first time the Marvel Cinematic U Universe released three movies in the same year. And that Oof. started to that that started to be a trend going forward then after after that but i thought it was something that we should note that this was the first time that they had actually had three films released in one calendar year three projects in a single year seems like a lot you could you could start burning people out if you did that many yeah. every year yeah oh yeah. oh hold it i think the next few years we're getting what 5 6 8 whatever yes and so. introducing tv shows on top of that yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think they never went past four movies, did they? Four movies in a year, I think, the most, or was there it, more? Yeah, uh, maybe. I, I I'd I'd have to look. I I I don't I no I don't think they went more than four, but I yeah they might have. Who knows? Yeah. So the movie contained an homage to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory that I did not remember when we when we see Thor. Uh, being brought on the chair where he is actually, you know, like handcuffed down to meet the Grandmaster for the first time. He is being driven through a brightly colored passageway, has this sort of uh, almost like uh, museum sort of like yep. description of what's going on and all this. And in the background, there was the pure imagination theme from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from the original 1971 film in there. And I did not remember that. And it, it feels almost like that boat scene in there uh, as well. A, a very disorienting, very weird, kind of eerie and, and that. And it, I, I did not remember that. It. And it jumped out to me right away when I was watching it today. Just astonishing me this week and all sorts of new things. I, I completely did not make that connection until now. I can see it in my head now, now that you mention yes. it, but I did not make that connection at all. So the scene that we had with Thor and Doctor Strange, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Chris Hemsworth, was actually shot nearly a year before principal photography began on Thor Ragnarok. And it was with uh, Taika Waititi, Chris Hemsworth, visiting the Doctor Strange set while they were filming uh, the Doctor Strange movie. And in fact, uh, the director of the Doctor Strange film liked that what they did so much that was included as part of uh, a mid-credit or after-credit scene, part of that scene that we then see in its full context in, in this film. Yep. Very cool. And finally, one last thing, the Grandmaster... So, so one question on that? Oh. So one question on that. Did did Watiti actually go and direct it there on that set? Or did that director actually do the direction of that? 
it sounds like Taika Waititi was actually a part of directing that scene, like on their on their set. Like he, he was wandered involved. onto their set and took yeah. over for a little bit. And... Cool. And finally, uh, according to Kevin Feige, the Grandmaster is the brother of Belicio del Toro's collector from the Guardians of the Galaxy film from 2014, and that he has, Feige, I mean, expressed an interest in seeing those two together at some point in a future film. We have not seen that, obviously, to this point. God only knows what that could look like if they actually did show up. Are, were they were they were they actually related in the comics? Did we have any indication that that was that was a thing from the comics? Well, they're both elders of the universe, so they both okay. are like these million year old. I thought they were each individual, separate survivors of ancient races that were like the last remainders of each of their species. Gotcha, but. That could be other. That could be incorrect, and or they might have changed it. Um, but there's there's a number of them that that kind of have wandered around here and there. Um, like Ego is one of the elders, and then these guys, and then I'm not sure if Galactus maybe is or. But a lot of these very very powerful entities in the Marvel universe uh, are considered to be the elders of the galaxy. All right, some references to the comics. Obviously, the first one we have to mention is Surtur. Obviously, Surtur appearing in a Ragnarok MCU story makes total sense because he was involved with we both the Ragnarok stories that we read uh, in the comics. We had Thor losing an eye during a battle with Hela. That obviously is a direct reference to the comics as well, where he loses not just one, but but both his eyes last week when when trying to get the the Odin power. The Grandmaster's Tower features statues of his champions, which are notable figures from the Marvel comics. We had Beta Ray Bill in the top left, the supernatural entity Man-Thing in the top center, the Greek god Eris in the top right, the asteroid monster the Bi-Beast in the bottom right, and the alien Fin Fan Foom in the bottom center, and the night and and the Nightcrawler in the bottom left. Note that the Nightcrawler is not to be confused with Nightcrawler from the X Men storyline. I actually thought that was Thanos for a little bit because he he looked a little bit to me like Thanos, but maybe I just didn't didn't did, didn't get a good look at that. Yeah, that is that's kind of a deep cut to a certain degree there. So, kind of crazy, but I, I remember all of those being really cool, sort of quick visual type things to bring in, just to sort of you know give those. That's the way I like Easter eggs is when they don't really get in the way. If if somebody sees it and they don't notice Beta Ray Bill, it's not going to ruin the movie. But right. if they do see him, it's like ah, it's Beta Ray Bill. That exactly. That's perfect, you know. So the the fact that I actually recognized Beta Ray Bill this time, as opposed to <laughs> the first time I watched this film, 
shows how much I've grown as a comic book fan that, that I actually made that connection this time that I did not make that connection last time. So when Thor is in the Colosseum, he wears a winged helmet during the battle, which is reminiscent to his helmet in North mythology and in some of the original Marvel comics. I loved the way that looked when he put the kind of the, 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 uh, the chin piece down and the kind of the wings on the back that, that looked fantastic. Loki's Loki's play mentions a time when he turned Thor into a frog. This is a reference to the Walt Simonson story where Loki briefly turned Thor into a frog. Uh, So, so, so we have that we have Throg, the frog of thunder is referenced in this film. Absolutely. Uh, On earth, Thor disguises his hammer Mjolnir as an umbrella, a little bit different in the comics though. Obviously Thor when he's in his mortal form as Dr. Don Blake, he, he, Donald Blake, excuse me, he disguises Mjolnir as a walking stick. However, he's very, we, we actually see him when Hela shows up, switches into Thor mode uh, by, 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 you know, stamping the mm-hmm. umbrella down and, and immediately becomes Thor in his Thor uniform and, and Mjolnir looks like, looks like a hammer again. Yeah, and the weird thing is, of course, he doesn't have a secret identity because girls are coming up on the street and asking to take yes. their pictures with him and stuff. So it's really just a cosmetic, essentially. He's just doesn't yeah. want to be wandering around drawing too much attention to himself or whatever. So right. a little bit odd. There is a panel in the Grandmaster's viewing room, which is decorated with Jack Kirby artwork that comes straight from Marvel Comics Fantastic Four number 64 from 1967. So you you Very talked nice. about kind of the color usage and stuff like that. There, there, there is a complete plug to that. Thor calls his team the Revengers. In the Marvel Comics, the Revengers were a team of supervillains and antiheroes made to oppose the Avengers. Yep. I have not read much Revengers. In fact, I don't think I actually even know who that is. So I'm going to admit that uh, they've they've cut too deep for me. I would have to look up the Revengers. And one last comment. As in the story we read last week, Thor intentionally brings about Ragnarok, destroying Asgard in an attempt to save his people. So... Lot, lots of references. I feel like there was more references to the comics in this movie than, than some of the other uh, MCU, many of the other MCU films, or at least I was able to recognize more of them this time than maybe I have in previous previous movies. No, this one definitely played up a lot of the visual gags. It brought in a lot more sort of name checks and stuff like that. They really played along and played around with things visually. And I think that probably to an extent, again, Watiti just maybe gave the visual artists more of a, a chance to just do whatever they wanted. Or even the costumers, because uh, some of the characters standing behind Thor when he was in that weird chair, they looked literally like they were right out of a Jack Kirby comic book, brought into three dimensions. Right. Uh, just a weird, totally impractical kind of costumes that, that Kirby put on all sorts of characters. So, yeah, I would I would agree. When this came out, it was a, an absolute just treasure trove of searching to go and kind of take a look and see what was there and just revel in it. 
All right, Dwayne. So, we have now read some Thor comics last week, and we've watched the Thor Ragnarok movie this week. Last week's Thor comics, volume 2, number 80 to 85, dealt with Ragnarok. And then this movie also gives us Ragnarok. Which one do you think was better? Boy, this is actually tough, because... I think if you'd have told me before last week, which one is like, or like right after last week's episode, which one was better? I think Slam Dunk. I would have said the movie, and all the way up until today, I think I would have said that. I watched the movie, and I think I'm still gonna say the movie, but it is a lot closer than I was expecting it to be. I my my feelings on this movie have actually changed quite a bit from where I was when I originally saw this film. And it is, there's a lot to like. And, and I, I think at the end of the day, that's why I'm picking that as the thing that I think told the story better. I, I think there's some really great performances in this. There's some really colorful things that happen. I, it just makes me concerned i guess about the future and now i know what the future holds and like some of this stuff that was so cool way back in 2017 when i saw this film doesn't feel quite as cool now and i i'm the thor comic book was really something to read and and i think from a story standpoint I think you could almost make an argument that that was a better story than this movie because it, there was more seriousness behind it. There was a lot more thought provoking type, type things that were going on in that story. But just from an entertainment standpoint, I think most people I think would get more enjoyment out of, out of the, out of the movie. And, and so that's the direction I'm going to go, but it, this is, this is weird. This was a lot closer than I was expecting it to be. As to myself, I really like Taika Waititi. And for the most part, even though this movie did not, it didn't feel like the absolute just joy that it did when I watched it originally. I still like it a lot. And so yeah. now, as far as a depiction of Ragnarok, I think that the comics... Actually, those those comics from back in like 2004 or whatever may have been a a better Ragnarok than either yeah. the White, Walt Simonson co comic books or the movie. Because the way they set things up, the way they brought in those Elder Gods to give us Ragnarok as sort of this secular, or cyclical thing that Thor eventually has to stop just to prevent his friend's and everyone he knows from having to continue sort of like living and dying in this eternal war forever. That was really well done. It was, yes. And so what fascinates me is that Michael Avon Oming hanging out in his basement on a budget of like no dollars and probably a relatively like short schedule writes a better story than Tika Watiti and however many hundred millions of dollars he had to actually make a script with, right? So 
That is a little weird. But overall, the movie still, as far as high entertainment and just sort of a a comic book treat, yeah, it's hard to argue with. So, I will, I will give him his, uh, I'll give him his win on this one. But with with props to Oming as well, that they'd have maybe been better off if they'd had him write their story, and then they took it from there. So. All right, Dan. We've done the face-off. Where are we headed next week? Next week we are getting ready for a truly tremendous film. So we're going to read up on the Black Panther in preparation for the Black Panther movie from 2018. Just going to send you in with some first-ofs and then with a great story that I think is going to have a lot of connections that you're going to find with the movie. So Fantastic Four, number 52, first appearance of Black Panther. Jungle Action, number six, first appearance of Killmonger. And then Black Panther, volume three, number one through 12, written by Christopher Priest, sometimes just called Priest. Really some great stories there, including the last four, which are the Enemy of the State storyline, which I think is going to be some stuff that's really relevant to what we're going to be watching in the movie. That sounds good. Looking forward to reading up on some more black panther and with that that is going to wrap it up for us for this week we'd like to thank you all for joining us if you're new to the podcast please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice that way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released if you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning we'd love to get your thoughts on the show or thor ragnarok maybe you rewatched it as well and have some thoughts you'd like to share you can send us those thoughts via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com. We're also on Twitter at or X at Comics Over Time there. And uh, we're going to be setting up a Blue Sky account here shortly, I believe, right? Yeah. Could there be anything more awkward than this whole X thing, by the way? Yeah. No, there's there, there really yeah. isn't. All right, Dan, it was interesting. Looking back at Thor Ragnarok, I definitely feel a bit more different about that film than I was expecting. But we got a very good film that I don't think has changed all that much since the last time I watched it. And I can't wait to dive into some Black Panther comic books to get me ready for them. There you go. Yep, absolutely. I do think, by the way, that it is going to be a little different because I don't know if I've watched this one since he died. So yeah, there will be some uh, some additional melancholy, perhaps, watching Black Panther. But in any case, everyone have a great week, and we will see you back here to uh, take a look at some more cool comic books. Take care, everybody. <laughs>